Hello, I'm Danny Deheck and this is the What Deheck podcast, the weekly podcast I do every six to eight weeks. This one I've been procrastinating to do, so I thank you for tuning in. On the internet at the moment, there is a lot of talk about a guy called Lloyd Evans, and he basically is an ex-Jehovah's Witness who takes it to the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, and recently he has done some things that he's not proud of and he's put it all online and if you put anything on the internet with his name you get a lot of traffic to your YouTube channel. So I thought I would join in and I did publish one video that had 7,000 people look at it in a few days and then I thought I'd do another one and then I thought about it and I thought no I don't really want to join in the circus and then I thought what do I want out of Lloyd? I've got a story to tell about my upbringing and some things that happened in my life that I don't share to people. And that's what a lot of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses want to do, is they want to actually get their story out there so people understand what it was like, um, not for empathy, but just to be more in tune with what's going on in people's heads. So I've actually spent the last 10 days putting together, I've spent 10 days writing this blog, and I've got it online, I've had it edited by a few um, people, thanks Bob and thanks Helen, my partner, and now it's online and I'm actually getting quite a lot of people uh, helping me, um, help, supporting me and writing comments. So I really want you guys to share my experience if you can. If you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, I'd really appreciate it. And also uh, on iTunes, if you can re- re- uh, write a review, it would be absolutely awesome. I have done uh, um, about six, um, I've done six um, interviews with ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, some of you may not, Jay the Comedian, and also um, Cliff Richardson, oh, I've said his name wrong I think, uh, Cliff Richardson, I think I've got that right, uh, his name's Fifth, he's a rapper in America, and also a few other people, um, so if you go through my podcast you will see there's a few actually guest interviews, but this one is my personal story that I want to share with you guys. So if you are looking on the YouTube channel, you see I've got the same blue shirt on in my photo, so I'm colour coordinated today, aren't you happy about that? So the title of my blog, or my story, is Escaping Suicide and Shunning by the Jehovah's Witness Cult. So as a disfellowshipped Jehovah's Witness, I've had thoughts of suicide. I think it would be honest to say that most people would have those same thoughts. But I've also suffered with extreme loneliness, and I want to explain what that impact those two things could have actually had in my life and how I'm lucky to be here today. So what is disfellowshipping? Well disfellowshipping someone after a dramatic life event and shunning them, discommunicating them from their family and friends in a time of need is a common practice that the Jehovah's Witness faith use. And I personally believe this is a contributing factor to so so, um, why so many people die from suicide, either from being disfellowshipped or discommunicating themselves or even being in the organisation not being able to live up to the high standards that Jehovah's Witnesses are expected to do. The determining detrimental effects of suicide on a family member are normally not discussed. Instead, many focus on the person who died and what got them to the point of suicide. No one or no organisation is held accountable for driving a person to do such a thing, which I actually think is appalling. 
So the story we're talking about today is about myself, my sister, and my stepfather. So my sister and I were both brought up Jehovah's Witnesses, so about two and a half years of age. I was baptized as a Jehovah's Witness at the age of 16, and from memory, I think my sister got to the stage of being an unbaptized publisher. Basically means she can knock on people's doors and um, spread the, the word of God if she wants to, even though she's not baptized. So my solo mum, she still loves the religion and she loves it more than me. And undoubtedly, she'll continue um, her Jehovah Witness path until she dies. Um, she absolutely loves Jehovah with all her might. So how did my mum get involved? Oh, one day, two Jehovah Witnesses knocked on the door. I'm going to flip back to my blog. Um, they left a Watchtower publication, had a small chat with my mum. Uh, and to be honest, she did say she took it out of politeness because they're very nice people. And then next week, she saw the same Jehovah's Witnesses coming back up the drive. So she had a cunning plan. She didn't want to talk to them again. She thought she'd bend over and duck so they couldn't see her. And then, um, would you believe, that uh, they caught her through the window. So she had to answer the door, um, bent over, saying she's got a bad back uh, and she couldn't talk right now. But through the persistence of the Jehovah's Witnesses that knocked on the door, uh, she actually, they actually managed to strike up a, um, a Bible study with her. And that's what they do with people who are interested in finding the truth. And then, what did we do? Um, and then she started studying and the rest was history, as they say. And this was a sort of a bit of a joke in our family, how we actually got uh, involved in the religion, simply because mum had a bad back. Ha <laughs> ha. So at that time, my mum was in a terrible state. You could say she was desperate. So her ex-husband, who was an alcoholic, which is my real father, he left us when he was about two and a half years of age. Uh, we never really went without. Mum was a really good provider, but it was obvious that my mum was struggling at the time. So when a group of people come along and built a community around her, she jumped at the chance of becoming part of what the Jehovah's Witnesses called the Worldwide Brotherhood. So I do have uh, various memories of my real father, Bruce Charlesworth. Um, I do remember him working, walking through the front door of the, um, the house uh, in the front. It was a glass door and he smashed all the glass. He was coming home from the pub. So it was shortly after that time, my mum actually did um, get divorced. And back then you had to prove that the, your ex-husband was committing adultery and that's what happened. So I do remember when I was about five coming back uh, and he bought me a bezel brush and he kept pushing it in my face uh, and going boom, boom. So that was a bit of a flashback I had of my real father. But I actually met him sort of officially when I was around about 14 years of age. He came down from the North Island where he lived and uh, to my brother's wedding. And it was ironic actually when you're growing up with by yourself and little association from your real father, but he had the same sixth sense of humour that I have, which was quite a hard case. So when I started travelling New Zealand with my business, I thought I would call in. So I remember at the age of 23, um, I, th I, I phoned him up, said, are you home? I'm going to drop in and visit you. And he said, I've got a gift for you. So when I got there, he gave me a piece of paper and it was full of usernames and passwords to porn sites. Uh, that was probably one of the biggest impressions my father gave me. Um, other than the flashbacks of the boom boom <laughs> in the face. Um, so Bruce Charlesworth, my real father, he smoked and he drank himself to death. He, after having lung cancer at the age of 53, he died. 
And just a week before he died, he decided to send me an email telling me that my mother had a bastard child and um, and he wasn't my real father. <laughs> just when I thought that he couldn't get any more loving. A lot of people, when you talk about Jehovah's Witnesses, they talk about it as a bad thing. So I want to be clear. Living as a Jehovah's Witness wasn't all bad. Um, I had a group of friends around me, and uh, we got labelled as the Rat Pack, and it consists of uh, Tony, Jeremy, Paul, Grant, and Kyle. Now, Grant and Kyle are no longer with us. Um, Paul, I have never been able to track, and Tony, I sent him a message with this blog um, 24 hours ago, and I haven't heard back, and the same with Jeremy. So I presume those two are still in the religion. So we all grew up together. We had the crushes on the same girls in the congregation. The congregation is where we used to meet, like our church. And we all basically wanted the same things out of life. We experienced drinking alcohol together for the first time. And we loved actually hooning around in our vehicles. I had a Austin 1100. And Tony, well, he had a Ford Escort. Grant had one of the latest Japanese imports that even had electric windows. And Paul, um, well, he was a bit of a rebel because he wanted a motorbike, and we all thought he was going to kill himself on that. Um, and then another Ford Escort lover was actually my dear friend, Jeremy. Now, his father, Murray, was a mechanic, so you can imagine he was quite useful to a bunch of young guys who kept uh, damaging their cars. And he was also one of the best elders in the, in the congregation that I remember. He would help us um, when things went wrong, not just with our vehicles, and he also gave us a lot of fatherly advice. So being brought up a Jehovah's Witness and not having a father meant that I actually had a lot of elders in the church that I could get a lot of advice from. And they certainly took me under their wing and helped me become the person I am today. And I'm truly thankful for that. I used to say to people, who needs a father when you've got five different elders in the congregation you can get advice from? Jehovah's Witnesses were my family. Can you imagine what it's like losing your virtual family and your real family in a heartbeat? Well, I was disfellowshipped for the first time when I was 22 years of age, and I was devastated. I, lost, I was lost and alone. I used to actually attend the meetings at the Kingdom Hall, bawling my eyes out every meeting. And I'm just going to add a little bit in there, I didn't put in the in the article, is no one ever came up to me and asked me if I was in a good mental state. Uh, every single meeting, tears streaming down my face, no one asked about my welfare. However, the elders must have felt pity on me as I was reinstated after four months. Now, no one that I've ever heard of had been reinstated within that time. They normally make you wait up to 12 months or 24 months. So yes, they may have shown compassion and done that. Anyway, 12 months later, I got disfellowshipped again. And I spent the next 12 months after that again trying to get back in, and after that I finally gave in. My saviour was other, from other people's perspective. My pitfall uh, was controlling my sexual urges. Yes, having relations with anyone before you were married was not allowed. Uh, so I really struggled with that, hence why I was disfellowshipped and why I never got reinstated again. So after saying that, I hope you can empathise with me and... This is actually one of my most personal experiences. And to publicly post it on my blog and broadcast it on the What The Heck podcast and stream it on YouTube um, was a big ask for me to do. But what the heck. 
I'll let you judge whether the Jehovah's Witness organization had an impact on me or our family members who died from suicide. This is pretty raw information, and it's not for people who want to continue living a sheltered life. So that's you. I want you to stop and um, listening, reading, or watching my YouTube um, channel because this information is going to get real. The organization labels people who speak out like I am as, as apostates and that we were taught to avoid them at all costs because you don't want to hear the truth. And I believe this is um, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't speak out about the organization. As I don't want to be labeled as something bad. And in the modern day, non-JW world, it's called discrimination. I don't want to be discriminated against. Another reason it's taken me 30 years to discuss this is out of respect for my mother or, in a lot of other people's cases, their families. I don't want to bring any more sadness into her life. Um, I don't want her to have any more pain. She's already lost her son. She's lost her daughter. And she's also loved, lost her husband that she loved. However, she just gets stronger in her faith every day. As they are taught that nearer the end, the closer to the system of things, um, they will get persecuted. And they look at a lot of this pain and anguish as persecution. And I think it's kind of addictive um, way of thinking. And to be honest, brainwashing and all that sort of stuff, I honestly believe this is um, w why it happens. And ironically, the more I speak out about the religion and the effects it had on my life, the bigger the wedge the organization drives between me and my family. These days, my immediate family hate me. And the silence is deafening. Their strategy is shun, shun you. They hope that you will return to the flock. And apparently all this is done out of love and for my own welfare. The Jehovah's Witness religion is one of the most selfish religions in the world. As it really is unconditional love for Jehovah at all cost. They hope that if you, uh, the hope is if you are faithful, you will live on a paradise earth and every other wicked person like me will be destroyed, including family members, friends that have been disfellowshipped. And you won't, uh, the, and all those who don't follow the beliefs of the organization. So if you serve Jehovah, do exactly what he says, you will get through. Everyone else will perish and you will not have any grief. You will live on a paradise earth. That is what they tell people. That is the brainwashing of this organization. <sighs> I'm a bit of a storyteller, so and also, as you probably figured out, I'm pretty open. I don't have any secrets. I got sick of keeping my secrets to myself. I got sick of being told what not what to do. So the story I'm about to tell you has been inside my head for quite a few years, and it's time to share it with you. My stepfather and my sister both died from suicide at the age of 36. I believe they did this because the pressures of the Watchtower, Bible, and Tract Society, uh, the pressures that they put on people to live up to their high standards. Now, if you're wondering, I was born in 1970, and I've lived a pretty good life to date, but it wasn't always the case. And I'm not bitter and twisted. This is just my life experience. I'm a storyteller. 
I like telling people. So if you do know me and you are an ex-Jehovah's Witness, you'll know that I am very active uh, on the ex-Jehovah's Witness Facebook groups. And I also spend a lot of time commenting on YouTube videos that I see, probably too much time. Often I tell people that I've had two people in my immediate family die from suicide, and I believe it's from the pressures that the Jehovah's Witness organization puts on people's lives. I believe um, they couldn't live up to the high expectations, and this was the main reason they died from suicide. I've got suicide in there twice. I'll say it again. Suicide. All right, I'm going to flip back to my article so you can keep up with me. So what actually blows me away about these people I chat to, and I get this from alleged Jehovah's Witnesses, the peace-loving group, they don't show any empathy. They're not uh, or sensitiveness. Instead, they're cruel, unkind, and harsh with their words, and they instinctively defend the organization and dismiss any connection between suicide and the cult. Blows me away. So let me tell you my story. Let me tell you um, my story. Um, and it starts with my stepfather, Robert de Heck. Now, the reason I'm called Danny de Heck is because I wanted to continue his name. My real name was actually Danny Charlesworth. And um, at the age of 15, I went to open a bank account and they told me that I couldn't. So I actually changed my name to de Heck. But different story, different podcast. Uh, so this is the names of my family. Um, right, we've got Danny DeHeck, that's me. Um, we've got Ricky Charlesworth, that's my, my half-brother. We've got Linda Warfield, that's my sister. And I've got Trish Kidd, uh, that's my mother. And I've got Sam, I'm not going to say her last name because I upset her in my last podcast by letting her name known. And I've also got Ashley, I'm not going to say his last name either because I don't want to upset him. And, um, and then obviously Robert DeHeck, which is my step-farmer. And we are a family. My stepfather, well, he immigrated from Holland. I think it was sometimes around 1970. And uh, he also had a brother, Bert, and they lived in Auckland, and they had a young family, but we were based in Christchurch. Now, Robert, he was the life of every party. He was funny, he was witty, uh, and he was also one hell of a shopper. Uh, it was like he was never content. And looking back, um, I think he found his happiness by purchasing items. So on a typical Saturday morning, uh, you would see us kids being followed into the um, red HQ Holden station wagon, and we'd drive off to New Brighton Mall, because they had uh, Saturday trading, and we'd often return with a car full of stuff that we didn't really need. Now from a kid's perspective, uh, it was fun times for all of us. Um, and probably from people looking at us from the outside, we probably looked like a normal Kiwi family. So a big part of my life with Robert was actually dealing with the silent treatment. Robert would go for two or three weeks, I even think he did it for two months once, not talking to the family. However, if someone unexpectedly turned up, he would um, be perfectly normal, humorous, witty. And I assume that when he was working for his clientele as a painter and a decorator, he had um, acted exactly the same way, um, like everything was normal. Now, I'm no psychologist, but looking back, I reckon he had bipolar or he battled with deep depression. So Trish Kidd and Robert DeHeck were Jehovah's Witnesses. And everyone who didn't know the situation at home would just think we were two normal <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses who actively preached the word of Jehovah from door to door. 
Hopefully, uh, they didn't look through the windows looking for people who were hiding. Hmm. So, 1979, we had a massive disaster in New Zealand called Mount Everest disaster. And this really affected Robert. Um, he spiraled, spiraled down to a new low. And one day after the disaster, he decided to actually end his life. So he told my mum he's going to kill himself. She laid down behind the back of the car so he couldn't drive off. However, he said, if you don't move, I'll drag you inside, lock you in the house. And this was actually the last time my mother um, saw Robert alive. So he, Robert drove his car to our family camping spot in Coast Ford. And... Um, Uh, drunk whiskey from a glass milk bottle um, as he gassed himself in the car. Uh, and it was in the morning, some children that were on a school trip found him in the morning. So as you can imagine, my mother was devastated. She was just a mess. The congregation elders actually um, quickly got involved. Alan and Dave came around in the evening and told my sister and I that my stepfather had taken his own life. And I still remember forcing myself to cry because I didn't know what it meant or how I should be acting. I couldn't comprehend what they were saying. I was only nine years of age and my sister was 11. So my mother, she blamed herself for his death. Uh, she carried the same shame associated with someone who showed disrespect for life because the Jehovah's Witnesses really believe that if you take your own life, you are showing disrespect to God for the gift he gave you. So it's a bad thing. So she had the shame of his death and also the grieving to go through. So seven years after Robert had died, I still remember my mum, I'd wake up to my mother crying out loud. And I'd wake up and say, are you crying about Robert? Robert? And she would say, yes. And I would say, that's okay, as long as I know what you're crying about. And then I'd go back to sleep. So this was my life, and it was like this for many years. And sadly, I do remember my mum um, locking herself inside the bathroom, and my sister and I couldn't get her to come out, so we had to call a, a family friend um, and um, to get mum out of the bathroom because mum wanted to take her life at that time. So my mother and myself have a very close bond, incredibly close bond, even today it continues, even though she doesn't have anything to do with me. So after Robert died, my half-brother, Ricky Charlesworth, resumed the position as the head of the house. Now he was just a teenager. He was more into his own life, selfish, and he showed little empathy towards others. He was hard-nosed and he was stubborn. He was nine years older than myself. I remember one day, Ricky was having an argument with his mum, and I know he's upset about this, but it's a, you can probably understand more as I say it, but after having an argument with my mother, um, she was complaining, we're going on about something, uh, while he was washing the car. Next minute, Ricky got so angry that he picked up the bucket of soapy water and threw it straight into her face. So Ricky did show little respect for anyone. He, he did employ the she, she'll be right attitude and nothing's a drama. Maybe that was his way of dealing with things, which was irrelevant. Um, which was, oh, sorry, the she, she, I'm sorry, I'm saying this, but the she'll be right attitude was 
relevant, especially when Robert was around. They used to bang heads quite a lot. Ricky didn't really seem to care about any of uh, Robert's things, especially Robert suffered with ADHD <laughs> and Ricky would borrow his tools, leave them all over the garage, uh, accidentally ran over one of Robert's lovely big boom blaster radios one day and it didn't even apologise and it used to rail each other up. Oh, the, the things I do remember, it was hard work. So anger, it was something that was hard to control for myself and obviously Ricky struggled with it too. I believe he is a victim, even though he's still in the religion, he is a victim. It would be fair to say I don't blame my brother for his actions. And um, it was a hard time for all of us trying to come to terms with it all. So Ricky moved aside for 18 months because that's how long Robert was in our lives for. And Ricky had resumed the position as the head of the household, which is something the Jehovah's Witness organisation has, is you always have a head of the household and it's always the man. Uh, and as I said earlier, it, it was clear that Ricky res resented Robert. Looking back, Ricky was just trying to do uh, his best and he was trying to be a good provider for the family. And uh, to this day, Ricky continues his faith as a Jehovah's Witness. And there's no doubt Ricky had a major impact on my life. He was a role model. He got married at a young age, had three children. Sadly, all of those children are no longer active Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, he also had got a divorce, and recently his daughter has been disfellowshipped. And despite living just 10 doors down from his daughter, he's now shunning her from his life, hoping that she will return to God's earthly organisation. And this is one of the reasons I speak out now, because I saw that happen, and I thought, I'm sick of these young people having to go through the same experience that I did. So to be honest, a lot of my upbringing is actually quite blurry, and I can't remember many things from the age of 10 to 15. I still have a lot of flashbacks about things that do happen. And this has been quite therapeutic, actually, writing or doing this podcast about my upbringing because it has opened up a few more thoughts that I forgot. However, a few more stories to tell. I do remember my sister at the age of 14. She used to sneak out her bedroom window, doing what 14-year-old girls probably do, sneaking out to space invader parlours. But the answer to the problem was um, I actually helped my brother now the bedroom windows um, um, closed to prevent her escaping at night time <laughs> and I do remember another punishment was my sister got a brand new 12 speed I think it was 12 speed racing bike which she loved and for punishment my brother decided to get it out of the garage put it on the front lawn and turn the sprinkler onto it, onto it. and then he told her that this would rust the bike and it would be ruined um, which was meant well, this was all meant to force her into being a good girl and stop her from being a rebellious teenager uh, I didn't help much either because I remember spying on her when she used to come home from school and I'd watch her hide her cigarettes in the hedge or somewhere down the railway line uh, so prevent my mother from finding her smokes and then I would um, go find them and destroy them and she would get so angry with me because she knew it was me <laughs> but um, uh, with all the dramas that the family was experiencing we did not know how to deal with the situation that we'd been forced into. This made my mother even stick closer to the religion, as it was like a crutch, and she relied on it her time of need. Mum used to say, how about this? Mum used to say she was unworthy 
to be a witness, because it was so precious to her. By ticking all the boxes as a Jehovah's Witness, I, um, yeah, I was ticking all the boxes as a Jehovah's Witness, and I even started doing auxiliary pioneering, which meant I spent 60 hours knocking on people's doors, which even made my mum happy. Um, this is what I grew into as a Jehovah's Witness. So some of the timelines of this stuff isn't quite right, but anyway, I've got my story out. So my sister, well, she became a quite a bit of a um, wild child. She started doing heavy drugs, and unfortunately, she was already smoking. She got into prostitution. She spent the majority of her life uh, living it to the full. Um, she was the party animal, well, not a party animal. She was the life of any party. Uh, she actually lived in Sydney for a few years and got married over there. And I remember her telling me when um, once that she was actually um, prostituting herself, but she was telling her husband at the time she was going out running her catering business um, uh, at night time, uh, which was quite a shock. So once her marriage ended, she returned to uh, New Zealand with Ashley, who he was actually only 18 months old when I first met Ashley. I'm going to flip to the screen. There's a nice picture of Ashley in the background there. And look, I can make myself disappear. That's pretty clever. Um, so he was 18 months old at this time, and um, um, I was flatting, but one of my flatmates uh, took a liking to my sister, and they finished up having a relationship. Um, she got pregnant, and Andrew was disfellowshipped for his actions, because you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> and um, so my sister actually ended up having two children. So we've got Samantha um, and Ashley. And Samantha, well, um, when Samantha was born, Linda got a severe case of postnatal depression. Um, we got a, a phone call one day, I'm pretty sure it was from the police, um, that one of the family friends had reported Linda because she either fessed up to it or somebody caught her, I don't know, but um, she was trying to smother um, Samantha at the age of two and a half years of age. So it was a horrific thing to hear. Uh, we knew her family life wasn't fantastic, but it was still a real shock. So Linda was admitted to uh, Christchurch uh, sorry, to Princess Margaret Hospital. They drugged her up to the eyeballs and she started receiving electric shock treatment, which I found out that they still do this today. And she would lose her memory for two or three days at a time, but they were hoping that this would shock her brain into a new path of thinking. Never saw any um, evidence of that, I tell you. And then after that, she spent the next two and a half years in and out of hospital. Uh, she was trying to get top on top of the postnatal depression. Um, she was also a frequent visitor to Sunnyside Hospital, uh, which is a, menti, a mental asylum. It was a terrible place to visit, but we uh, often did go there. So Linda had uh, multiple suicide attempts. Um, I'll never forget the one where she actually cut herself 47 stitches and 25 stitches uh, at the same time. And it still makes me shake my head when I hear those thoughts. I can't imagine doing that to yourself. Anyway, one day I received this screaming phone call from her one day. And I rushed around to her house, and when I got there, the car had actually been driven into the house. Uh, Linda and her lesbian lover had decided to do a Thelma and Louise. Uh, their plan was that they would drink a bottle of vodka each, and this would give them enough courage to take their own lives. But somehow this escalated into an argument, and Linda had called me, hoping I'd be able to fix it. So when I turned up there, I've got the car, I remember razor blades, I physically, they weren't in the house when I got there, and then all of a sudden my sister turns up, and she looks like she'd been running, and then her um, lover had turned up behind her, and um, I had to physically break them up. 
So razor blades, physically breaking up the argument, calling the police for help. And then when the three police cars turned up with their sirens bla blazing, I had to convince them that I wasn't the aggressor. I told the police to have a look at their wrists, and then next minute, we were rushing uh, to the 24-hour surgery in the police car. And the icing on top of this, if you are an ex-Jehovah witness, you'll know what this means. But my sister was telling me on the way to the 24-hour surgery that she'd been talking to my dead father all afternoon. So I could tell you stories all day long. Um, I often say to people, 40, 50 suicide attempts I was privy to. Um, but I was always the person that my sister uh, seemed to call when she got herself in the shit. Uh, we were actually very close. Uh, we did fight like cats and dogs when growing up, <laughs> but I spent years supporting her. I think it was 20 years of, um, well, she died at 36, and uh, she started getting off the rails at 14, so do the maths on that one. So I lost count of the times... Um, that I had to actually move house for her. And I had this relationship with her washing machine that I'll never forget, especially the time she decided to get an upstairs um, apartment. And I had to carry this washing machine upstairs. I hated that. And then she moved out shortly after as well. So I would go along with her sometimes to her psychologist. Often I would drop her off and then occasionally I would go in to the meetings with her. And I listened... Um, to her sheer incredibly sad and very personal experiences and I'm going to keep these to myself um, uh, to my sister and I but I will tell you one more freaky story <laughs> I return, I decided one day for whatever reason to return home at Friday at 10 o'clock in the morning and my sister was living back home at this time um, in the family home she had a video going with Pink Floyd the Wall and it was on the TV going through the sound system. It was incredibly loud. And I looked through the window to see what was going on. And I could see her there having a go at cutting her wrists again. So I had to take her to the doctors immediately. I had to manhandle her into the car. Throw a duvet over her because she wasn't clothed. Um, and then when we got to the doctor's surgery, they got an ambulance to the hospital and once again, she had taken all the medication and cut her wrists. The doctor said this time I saved her life. If you looked at my sister's arms, you would see racing stripes um, of previous suicide attempts. On the 3rd of December, when my sister was 36 years of age, and she was on 15-minute suicide watch at Sunnyside Hospital, she took her own life by hanging herself on the window ledge with her belt. My stepfather, Robert de Heck, took his own life on the 3rd of December, and he was also 36 years of age. There was no doubt in my mind that my father's suicide and the pressures of the Jehovah's Witness organisation and what they put on individual individuals had a major impact on everything that happened to both Linda and Robert's life. I don't think you need to be a to have a psychology degree to know that people suffer with depression. Oh, I'm not going to say this right. People suffer with depression when they can't live up to the expectations a religious cult puts on people. This is why it's a known fact that many ex-Jehovah's Witnesses die from suicide. I know firsthand 
what it's like to be excommunicated from something that you used to use to support yourself like a crutch. It's devastating. I was excommunicated in a time of need, and I lost the majority of my family, including my mother, my brother, and all the people I grew up with, all of them. I was trying to deal with all things that, when I was trying to deal with all things that was going on, and it still continues today, 30 years later. I remember at the funeral that we couldn't hold at the Kingdom Hall, seeing all the family friends looking at me as I gave a speech about Linda's day. I remember saying, Linda has been planning this day for years. Let's celebrate it with her. Looking directly at those families who used to support us when we were going through terrible times. Um... You know, in coming to terms with Robert's suicide, I'm just going to flip the screen onto the um, the workshop mode so you can see my sister. She's absolutely gorgeous. And um, that photo was taken at the groins, and she was 14 years of age there. She was a very um, pretty young lady. So I just wanted you to see that. I'll even remove myself from the picture so you can see her. And those shoes, nomads, they were real cool at the time. Um, so um, anyway... Uh, so I'll never forget when I was standing up at the, uh, on the stage with the microphone, looking at those very people, and I would actually never forget um, what I said. And it's, this is what it was. If Linda was standing here and talking to you, she would have wanted to thank all those people who did the random acts of kindness, kindness for our family when we were growing up. And then I said, including the Joneses, the Martins, the Fords. I said, this is a sad day for us, but a peaceful day for Linda. It was kind of an interesting experience, being able to look and talk to people in the eye when they would not be talking to me afterwards because they were still part of this Jehovah's Witness cult. They were remaining loyal to Jehovah. So, I'm disfellowship. My mother's still clinging on to the religion organization with all her life. And she simply loves the organization more than me. My mother and I um, stepped... What I'm trying to say is mum still loves the religion more than me. However, my mother and I stepped in to continue looking after Linda's son, which was Ashley. So she agreed that it would be best for me to move into the sleep out at the back of the house. And I would drop Ashley off at childcare in the morning and she would pick him up in the afternoons when she finished work. Mum worked in a supermarket for all her life after I turned 18. This was probably the most normal time in my life since I was disfellowshipped. You know, because go from not being able to talk to Danny to Danny living in the house, bringing up, helping bringing up um, Ashley, my nephew. Um, so mum was still trying to encourage me to come back to Jehovah. However, I'd had enough and I was sick of the religion. Um, but she never gave up hope, uh, as they say. And I think I might have even been attending some of the meetings when I was living at home from memory. So I'd been through a lot with my mother and the Jehovah's Witnesses 
just owned us when it came to um, my father's death because at the time it was a shameful thing to show disrespect for your for taking your own life. So they didn't really want anything to do us, or they didn't want to bring reproach against Jehovah's name. So they basically left us to it when Robert had died. Um, we were not even allowed to actually have a memorial service in the Kingdom Hall. They do actually say now that they accept that there is mental illness, but you still can't get um, have your uh, memorial service. They don't do funerals, a memorial service in the Kingdom Hall if somebody has taken their own life. So at that time, you can imagine my mother... Um, when my father died, because we're going back a bit, my mother was so upset that my sister and I didn't actually get to go to the funeral of my stepfather. So for years, I wouldn't have been surprised if my father actually turned up again. I didn't even get an opportunity to say goodbye to him, obviously. And I don't really feel, even to this day, I've had any closure. So I was disfellowshipped at the age of 23, but I did move back to the family home to help bring up Ashley, as I said. And Samantha was looked after by her father, who was at the time reinstated as Jehovah's Witness, and he's also got married. Um, we used to get the kids together on the weekend, so they would have some sort of family association. And at this time, because this was before Linda had died, um, Linda had um, was still battling with addiction, and I do remember she had moved back home. So we had um, Ashley, Linda, myself, and my mum living under the same roof, and I was in the sleepout, and I was just fellowshipped. The religion, um, the religion has only caused anguish. It's been a crutch for my mother, and to be honest, it probably was for me at one stage as well, and I'm sure it is for a lot of other Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I don't actually resent the people in the religion um, for the way they treated our family. I hope I said that right. I simply don't believe it's the true religion, and I see another side that other people in the religion don't see anymore. I believe it's actually a money-making um, organisation, a printing organisation that want you to contribute to their Watch Channel Awake publications, something like that. So, yeah, it would be true to say my stepfather and my sister had mental illness. And, um, and they could have listened to the advice the elders who had no training in this area they could have given them. Normally they just tell you to pray and read the Bible. The Bible states that you should, shouldn't show disrespect for your life as, as it is a gift from Jehovah. There's no such thing as um, mental health in the Bible. Uh, these days Jehovah's Witnesses, they do believe that it's a sickness, but they still won't let you have your memorial service in the Kingdom Hall when you take your own life. Um, so I just think they're doing a lot of this to keep it PC. So as I said, Samantha was brought up. I'm going to flip back to that. Um, Samantha um, was brought up by her father, Andrew, and he's now married, and, they, um, and she has started her own family. A lot of what happened with her mother, um, she was sheltered from, and I didn't actually really realise how much she was sheltered from what life her mother used to live, which I was quite surprised about, and that's something that um, I've only really just discovered recently. But one day her curiosity got the better of her and we went out for lunch and she wanted to know more about her mother. And so I told her what I knew. And um, to be honest, uh, to this day, she's still trying to process it all. But in the meantime, she um, gives me the silent treatment. Um, she doesn't have anything to do with me. And she's not a baptised witness. Um, I think she was an unbaptised publisher once. 
which is uh, a real shame. Um, I hopefully, when she's finished processing this, you'll be a friend in my life again because she's very dear to me. So Ashley, well, <laughs> funny, after much warning, he uh, decided to live with my brother for, I think it might have been a few months or a few years, I'll say a few years, but that didn't last long. Eventually, he moved back into the sleepout where I used to live. Um, so the only person in our family that Ashley has a relationship with is my mother. That's it. No one else. Um, but I've always treated Ashley like he's my son. Um, so just um, the problem I have with Ashley is he thinks I should uh, just let my aging mother continue to push the religion on me. And I'm... I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the religion. It's not my religion. <laughs> so Ashley has stepped up and he looks after the welfare of my mum, which I'm very grateful for. So I'm proud of my sister's children. I am. Samantha and Ashley. I'm also proud of my brother's children, Levi, Jesse and Jasmine. Especially that they haven't let this organisation bog them down. They've got on with their own life. And they probably think I'm the crazy uncle that has a chip on their shoulder about the Jehovah's Witness organisation, which is probably not too far from the truth. I honestly feel it's one of the most selfish religions in the world. But I'm no longer brainwashed, nor a heartless robot that knocks on your door looking for people who've got bad backs. <laughs> they used to talk about the elders in the congregation as shepherds looking after sheep. And if you think about... Shepherds, you know, um, what do they do? They keep the flock together and then they slaughter them <laughs> to make a living. And it isn't far from the truth. The Watchtower Bible and Track Society is a man-made religion and their numbers are declining, especially in first world countries. Thank goodness. They are now sending out missionary, missionaries to third world countries looking for these lost sheep. I truly believe they're doing this to help keep their numbers up. Easy, you know, they promise a beautiful paradise earth and they give people a purpose and they blindly go along there and follow it. My um, podcast is just about done, guys, so I'm going to go back to big screen. So it really does sadden me. Um, it is saddening to think that if I died or I, I did take my own life like I could have done, whether any of my family would miss me or shed a tear. Can you imagine contemplating whether you would attend a funeral if someone in your family dies? Doesn't that sound like an unnatural decision to make? And disfellowship people, not disfellowship people, people who have died don't get a chance to talk. So I'm doing it for my sister and my stepfather so I do believe I'll never get closure and I'm not looking for it I'm certainly no prodigal son I'm not returning there's people that hang on to the truth like my dear mother and they simply would not survive without the belief of a paradise earth they are too far invested but with the con consistent repetition of brain washing techniques that they are continuously bombarded with. They have five meetings per week. I think they still have five. Um, they get this when they attend the meetings. Now, majority of them are on Zoom uh, because of COVID. 
uh, it's just too hard to walk away because I've invested, my mum's invested, uh, oh, I don't know, let's go 49 years of her life as a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, so it's too hard to walk away. And I do, um, <laughs> so if you, yeah, what I'm trying to say here is, that, uh, what do I say, uh, brainwashing techniques, when you attend the meetings, yep, you, so you get brainwashed at the meeting, it's too hard to walk away and start a whole new way of thinking. Yeah, because you can't walk away from it. You, you have to start a whole new way of thinking. And then also, they're going to take your friends and your family away. So you just can't leave the organisation. A lot of people are in it just for the brotherhood. Not because of the belief of the God and the system of things, but they know that they're going to lose everything. And I think a lot of cowardly people, coward, cowardly people stay in the organisation because they're too scared to walk away. So my warning and the whole purpose of this whole thing, and I, rather than talking about Lloyd Evans, um, if you're thinking about getting involved with the, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, uh, and you choose to turn your back on Jehovah, the very first thing they're going to do is they're going to strip away your friends and your family. And then they're going to tell you, and everyone around you, they're doing this out of love. <sighs> this one action alone can push people over the edge, just like they did with my sister Linda and my stepfather Robert. The aftermath of being part of this organisation is life-changing, and it affects everyone differently. Trust me, I've talked to quite a few ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. For me, watching my nephews and nieces navigate their way out of this religious cult uh, compels me to speak out. I am a survivor, and there's many other survivors. And if you're one of them, and you're feeling lonely or depressed, you're welcome to join my community on my private Facebook group. And it's called Ex-Jehovah's Witness Family. Do a search for that. And there you can share your experience uh, with your new family. Hey, I'm Danny DeHeck, and this has been What The Heck Podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to me, I would welcome you to post a comment or engage with me online. And please do reach out to me on Facebook because I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to my podcast, my YouTube channel and reading my blog. <laughs>